Salutations, fellow Saurian savants, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. On today's show, we're reviewing Jurassic World. Then in special features, we will discuss, should sequels have different directors? And finally, we will wrap up the show as we always do, with some really rad recommendations. But first... So, Chris, and uh, to my millions and millions and millions of fans out there, you're probably wondering, where was Hunter last week? I know that a lot of hypotheses were made and postulations mm-hmm. were thrown out there. So, I just want to set the record straight because there's been a lot of gossip on TMZ about where I actually yeah. was. So, can we we can call off the... We, you know, we have a whole crackpot team kind of working on piecing it all together. Are you going to... You know, yes, I will. I will unveil the okay. truth about where I actually was. I was in Los Angeles, California on vacation, the capital of filmdom. And rather than do a litany of everything I did, I will focus on one moment in particular, which I think is pertinent to this show. That being, I did the touristy thing, touristy of all touristy things, and toured Warner Brothers Studios. Mm. Now, I don't know if any of you all have done that, but the best way to describe this experience is... The old cliche, you looked taller on screen. Going to Warner Brothers Studios and seeing all the costumes and sets and the like, you're hit with this sudden realization of just how manufactured filmmaking is. My my reaction was, you looked more authentic on the screen. <laughs> The in and not and not to not to say that the costumes looked horrendous or anything. Mm-hmm. They looked they looked believable, but they look so much more believable on screen yeah. than they did up close. The way studios work, certainly in an older setting and even in a modern setting, is that everything is manufactured. Even uh, WB, they have this what they call their East Coast set Mm -hmm. where they shoot all of their outdoor New York scenes. So a scene that was... And is that where, like, like I know Seinfeld shot exactly, a lot of stuff. Exactly. Uh, literally, a car length away from where Seinfeld shot a lot of stuff is also where they did a scene from Jersey Boys. <laughs> and you look at both of them, they look like, they look like New York City, but mm-hmm. yet it's not. It's Burbank, California. And when I say it's manufactured, I mean it's down to the gum on the ground. They use fake gum on fake brick on the ground. So is it just it's just, like goopy not i'm not sure what it is but it's not going to stick to you exactly it's not going to stick to your feet and then there's also another place within the the back lot which is they call it any town usa or middletown usa and it's just insert neighborhood here Uh so you have the ray romano house from everybody loves raymond and then next to it you have the drew carey house which was in cleveland ohio Uh so lawn island new york is right next to cleveland (laughs) uh ohio and then they also have the church and all that um, the two biggies, the two big, you know, kind of gut punches, uh, were, I saw every single Batman costume. They were all on display and it was a little overwhelming, mostly because especially the Michael Keaton one, they're all a lot shorter than me. Like, and, it, <laughs> like, and like how much shorter? Like, well, it's not like I'm Wilt Chamberlain or anything, but for instance, the, uh, the bat ears on the Michael Keaton one, I would uh-huh. say they came up to just a little bit over my head or maybe even with my head. Huh. And so you put a full grown man in the bat suit and then. Mm-hmm. It's just like I said, it's just a little overwhelming. And then the other one, which is pertinent to our conversation today, was they have this one thing called the Force set. And the Force set used to be way bigger back in the 50s and 60s when they had a lot of Westerns. But today it's much smaller. And anyhow, in the Forest set, they have this track of land about four blocks long. And on this track of land, they shot the scene in the original Jurassic Park where the T-Rex is chasing the Jeep and it's the Mm, must go faster mm -hmm. scene. And anyway, watching that, you feel like it's being shot in an island or somewhere. Yeah. But going there, it just it, it's like a public park. So this big, massive, epic scene 
it was shot in what's a, a basically a public park. Yeah. And so it, it, it on the one hand, it kind of takes the magic away. But then on the other hand, you realize just how impressive the, the feat is. Mm-hmm. That these people are able to make these things look so impressive. I assume on the tour, they're not going to get into details. I mean, do you think maybe it's because they shot a lot of Jurassic Park in, in Hawaii? Mm-hmm. You know, do you think it's possible that, you know, maybe a combination of the well, they have the they have the animatronic uh, robot dinosaur like maybe they shot pieces there and then. Well, and I, I think put it nowadays together. it's more and more so much happens in computer. And that's mm-hmm. the, that's the next mm-hmm. other thing is I don't, you know, God bless them. But I don't know how a person can maintain their sense of self-worth being in a giant room of green things and talking to a green thing and uh-huh. directing green things. If and, they even have a green thing to talk to. Right. Exactly. I like mean, there's an X on the you, wall. You just at, at that point, you're just you're living in a world that's so delusional. I'm not sure how you ever escape. And in fact, most people don't. They become drug addicts and alcoholics mm-hmm. like evidently you guys thought I did. And I right. came really close. I was just yeah. there for five well, days. You, OK, so you you left and went to uh, L.A. as a cynic. You, you saw all these things that really like, you know, just even tear down the walls more of the uh, the facade that you had of like what Hollywood is, what movie making is. The fourth wall how, was the Berlin Wall, <laughs> you can almost say. How did how did you leave L.A.? Like what are what, what have you transformed well, into? I, well, actually, the, this will transition nicely, I think, into our topic today is. Looking at the film industry as it truly is, and mind you, this is a tour. It's not like I'm diving really deep into right. it, but just seeing it as it is, it killed the magic in many ways. Mm-hmm. However, a little movie that came out recently kind of revived the magic in, in Little Hunter. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, and I think we're going to talk about that movie today. Have, have I heard about this movie? Um, I, you know, it came out recently. It has dinosaurs in it. You know, dinosaurs, you talk about your vacation a little bit. Uh, I was on vacation at the same time I was in New York. I actually saw a lot of dinosaur bones on my vacation. I'd, now, is that in reference to the old people who populate New York? Uh, no, that's, that was not my intent at least. Um, no, we went to the American Museum of Natural History, which is kind of a interesting little museum in that it to me felt like the sort of museum, what, what they thought a museum should be in like the fifties. Like, it feels like, I don't know, you know, I don't know the history of it or anything, but it felt like there were a lot of things that maybe hadn't been updated so much in, you know, the past several decades. Um, a lot of, like, life-size... Well, by that, do you mean, like, they had cavemen fighting dinosaurs or things? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. More, more. there were these, like, life-size dioramas. Everything was, like, a, a life-size diorama of, like, here's Indians doing an Indian dance or whatever, but really really bad looking mannequins or um there were a lot of cool like uh sort of scenes of be it a bear hunting a whatever bears hunt or well or the, whatever yeah and um but like they were all it was just like a little bitty box of like here's the scene with a, with a gorgeous matte painting behind it and that sort of thing well and i think we've seen the american museum of natural history several times on film that's that's yeah. I, I know i have was it over- underwhelming to you seeing it in person then um i don't think it, it had a charm in its campiness i think uh, but the dinosaurs the dinosaurs were amazing now I mean, yeah. giant giant dinosaur bones and and some some fully built dinosaurs some just like oh we we have the hip and the whatever and and here's what it we think it would look like if 
we had the full thing. Well, and to that point, I have two big questions. They okay. have a T-Rex, don't they? Uh, they do have a T-Rex. All right. Because, you know, okay, I'll, I'll take a little nerd side side trip here. I've seen one at the Perot Museum in Dallas and then mm-hmm. another at the Houston Natural History Museum. Yeah. And then that actually that I, I think that one might have actually been cooler than this one. Well, everything's bigger in Texas. Right. And then there's Sue, which Sue visited the Sam Noble Museum in Norman, Oklahoma. But I believe she actually lives in Chicago. So, all right. So, okay. So you saw a Uh T-Rex. So there's that. Did you see an Indominus Rex? Uh, I no, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know all the, you know, names of them, uh, the way you do, but I don't think so. Which one is that one? Well, Chris buckle up and stay tuned because you're about to find out ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Jurassic world. We have learned more in the past decade from genetics than a century of digging up bones. A whole new frontier has opened up. We have our first genetically modified hybrid. We just went and made a new dinosaur? Probably not a good idea. Almost 40 feet high. Really think she climbed out? Depends. On what? What kind of dinosaur they cooked up in that lab? Evacuate the island. She's a highly intelligent animal. She will kill anything that moves. Colin Trevorrow's Jurassic World marks the fourth film in the Jurassic Park franchise, and the director's first feature with a big blockbuster budget. We return to Isla Nublar, the original site of John Hammond's ill-fated business venture. They spared no expense to rebuild and kind of rebrand. The new park has become much more than a glorified dinosaur zoo, with corporate sponsorships, on-site hotel accommodations, and even a Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville. It's a full-blown destination vacation spot. But... Dinosaurs have been back on the planet for a while now, and tourists don't find them quite as exotic and astounding as they once did. So, what are you going to do? Invent a new dinosaur. From there, everything goes great. After a long, arduous journey, Littlefoot is reunited with his mother, and they all live happily ever after in a dozen direct-to-video sequels. Um, actually, Chris, everything goes wrong, resulting in untold amounts of chaos and carnage and death and destruction. Um, also... Littlefoot's mother died, so... Oh, wow. They really made some changes to the 3D version. Uh, All kidding aside, it's a Jurassic Park movie. Of course things go wrong. So, Hunter, you have a penchant for prehistoric monster movies, and if I recall correctly, a fondness for Steven Spielberg's original Dino Disaster. Some hubbub has been made recently about the trend in the film industry to create sequels that cherry-pick history and facts from their predecessors, to create a somewhat incongruous timeline across the entire franchise. Jurassic World certainly falls into these trappings. So I'm curious, did this semi-messy a la carte approach affect your stay at the park? Or were you too damn drunk with dazzling dinosaur delirium to disrupt your delight? 
Well, Chris, I think you know the answer, and the answer is that not only was I too damn drunk to have my delight disrupted, I am still, to this day, too damn drunk to have my delight disrupted. I adored this film, and in answer to your first question, just so we address that, being a lifelong Godzilla fan, I am actually used to the idea of eliminating an entire bunch of sequels. Uh-huh. For instance, Godzilla 1985, which the Japanese version came out in 84 and was called The Return of Godzilla, ignored about 12 films and was just a direct sequel to the original. So this is nothing new. Hollywood is just now catching up to the Godzilla franchise. Real real trendsetters there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it took, what, 30 years for them to do it? So in any event, if I were to give my Rotten Tomatoes blurb about this picture, I would say that if you are like me, and I suspect you are, or you should be like me, if you are a fan of the original or the original series or even just dinosaurs in general, Jurassic World blends novelty and nostalgia in such a way I do not know how you cannot take at least some enjoyment out of it. Were there plot holes? I'm sure. Was it get a little funky at times? Yes. Were the characterizations a little weak? Of course. But... Here's the thing, and I feel the same way about a lot of Christopher Nolan's films, is if I am so enveloped in what's going on that I don't notice the problems, I only notice the good things, then I would qualify it as an A+. And to that that point... It, you know, it's it's not an Academy Award winner, and I don't think anyone anticipated it to be. But I would say as an emotional experience, an emotional film-going experience, I enjoyed this as much as anything since The Dark Knight Rises. And again, that's another picture that has a lot of problems, but at the same time, it's like watching a football game. You don't worry about the plays, you just think about the touchdown, and this film scored a touchdown. You know, I, I think I had a very different experience going into this initially than, than you. Um, I saw it on Thursday night uh, before... Uh, it opened Friday and critics were already kind of putting out things. And most of what I was seeing, like, I think it's doing fairly well in Rotten Tomatoes right now. Mm-hmm, about but, 72. But most of what I was seeing was really bad, like really panning it. And so I was already a little skeptical about like, I mean, I, I only saw the first trailer that came out um, as I guess I'm want to do uh, typically. But uh, I was, you know. Willing to see it, interested in seeing it. It's a, it's another Jurassic Park movie, and it's starring Chris Pratt. I love Chris Pratt, uh, but it's on American not to right, at this point, right? But you know, it seemed like they were doing sort of the franchise thing, the the Fast and the Furious thing, or whatever. Where it's like if you if you were to compare the new film to the original, like they would almost not connect with just like how insane things have gotten. Like it felt like it felt like things have gotten just like bigger, faster, stronger. All right. Um, and so I went in like pretty skeptical about, you know, hopeful, but skeptical. And I was mesmerized by this movie, like beyond like there was some there were some funky parts for sure. But I was mesmerized by this movie for probably the first hour, hour and 20 minutes. And then it got really bad. Now, what was what was the trigger? Hold on. And then it got really good. Okay. So I think I'm a little mixed on it, like overall. Uh, But, you know, it might be a combination of going in with low expectations and that sort of thing. But uh, I I I enjoyed it. Like, I don't think I'm quite as much of an going to be as much of an acolyte for this movie as you were. But I did enjoy it. Well, and that's a good point to make is I think a lot like Avengers, I went in just deciding I was going to like it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And this prob- this even more so. Yeah. 
I mean, it, 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 it could, even if it's screwed up, even if it was bad, I was going to enjoy myself. But I still think I'm trying to be as objective as possible, and I'm not going to be, but I'm going to try. I still think it was a solid effort. But I'm curious, where did this movie trip, and then where did it pick itself back up in your mind? Um, That's, you know, that's a little spoilery. Well, let's, uh, let's table that until a little bit later in the discussion. Okay, and, terrific. And and move on. I here's a question I have for you. Um the you mentioned I don't know exactly what your your words were, you know, newness and nostalgia or whatever kind mm-hmm. of blending together. Um did you find there's there's a lot of places throughout this that directly make homage or nod or theft of uh the original Jurassic Park. Did you did that win you over or did that bother you? Um, it didn't bother me. I don't think it was as good as it could have been. The one big misfire was they had the da 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 da, and it was building, 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 and then the big reveal was the kid running through the hotel room to open the open the window, yeah. and then you see the entire park. Two problems with that: one, you have at least ten seconds of that song in a hotel room, so that just completely hits the brakes on yeah. the moment. And two, whenever the finally da da da, you don't see any dinosaurs. It's just the you park. Well, yeah, you just see the park, which just looks like, you know, it's a park, yeah. regular theme park USA. Like it, so that, that was something that I think sounded like they were like, they were really excited about it in the scripting and the storyboard mm-hmm. stage. And then once it went then the end product, was well, just it felt very underwhelming. Disin- it felt very disingenuous to what Jurassic park is though. You know, like that you need to save that for like the reveal of an awesome, majestic dinosaur. Like that is what that. You right. Know, not just Disneyland in yeah. Hawaii. And, yeah. and and that's I think that's one of the things that kind of uh, rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Not not to the extent where I just absolutely hated it. But, you know, there is a lot of I mentioned the Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the Samsung Innovation Center. And then at one point, Verizon is meeting with them to talk about uh, sponsoring a this new dinosaur exhibit that they're that they're working on. The the one that ends up, you know, causing all the chaos uh, throughout the film. There's there's something that just felt a little sterile and a little like I, I don't know if they were making comment on it. It, well, would, it would be one thing, but it felt like they were really embracing it. It was it was in, either in or, you know, it, and they were doing both because in the one hand, I think they were being critical of corporatization of of beauty because they uh-huh. make the comment about selling baseball parks to corporations. But then on the other hand, you have Chris Pratt while working on a motorcycle drinking from a Coke uh-huh. with the label pointing right <laughs> a, at the camera. A glass, a glass bottle of Coke, which you only see in commercials or or Jurassic like World. Yeah. And to this point, I don't want to imply that Chris and I are against product placement. For instance, I, I mean, I love Audible and Squarespace. Yeah, fantastic, Audible and Squarespace. Fantastic I mean, especially, services. especially if they, uh, you know, we could we could use an update to our website. In fact, or, you can hear uh, me munching cash in our pockets right now. I'm actually eating snack box right now. These are yeah. so good. Yeah, mm. um, yeah. I'm devouring them like Harry's a razors. I use them for my beard. So um, I mean, but anyway, so you did. So you felt that you the product placement. It didn't. It it, it, said, it felt like product placement, not not common. Yeah, it, it did. There's. I mean, there's even parts where uh, there's like a, I don't know, semi military group of guys uh, going after a dinosaur, and one of the, at least one of them has like the new Samsung smartwatch. Uh, like on his wrist and he's using it to track the dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. you know, track. And, you know, that's and everyone has a Samsung phone. And, you know, so it felt like they are in cahoots with these these groups. It didn't have the teeth that I think 
I, I guess pun intended to, uh, you know, really make a statement about that. It's hypocritical insofar as they're embracing some of the products, but at the same time, they're commenting on corporatization. Very, very lightly commenting. Yeah. And to that point, I'm surprised you didn't mention the big one to me, which was the Mercedes. Everyone's driving Mercedes oh, yeah. vehicles, which if you'll recall, those were the cars in the lost world. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was even, I remember on the tape, there was a commercial for Mercedes Benz <laughs> before the lost world played. So actually, I mean, maybe that's a little dose of nostalgia too for me is here we are 18 years since the lost world and it's still everything's mercedes Mm -hmm. because apparently mercedes makes great jungle vehicles right (laughs) yeah no that's that's all i've ever heard about them yeah i mean why go to humvee when you can go to mercedes okay let's let's hold off the dinosaur talk for just a little bit you know let's tease it out i uh i'm curious what did you think of the performances in this movie I thought that every single person did exactly what they needed to do. The person who I think gets uh, an A-plus in my book, and you mentioned him a second ago, is Chris Pratt. The reason being, and I'll compare it to another performance, is last year Godzilla came out, and you had Aaron Taylor Johnson playing mm-hmm. a very similar character, the stone-faced, gruff, tough guy. Zero charisma. In fact, it was yeah. negative charisma. It was actually pulling interest away. And that character wasn't any any more shallowy shallow isn't any more shallow on the page Mm -hmm. than the chris pratt character but chris pratt was able to infuse his version of the macho tough guy with so much natural uh, likability that it was uh, made all the difference in the world you were never bored by him i think chris pratt definitely played the character better i do also think uh the aaron taylor johnson character in godzilla though was put in some more ridiculous situations given like the, the scope of it than Chris Pratt is not to say that his character isn't put in ridiculous situations with giant dinosaurs, but like it feels more natural, you know, given the setting where Aaron Taylor Johnson, it felt like he just kept ending up in the worst possible right. place and everyone around him died. And then he moved on to the next place. But, but him, and, but and he also wasn't very capable. Uh, like, the, the character, or the actor, uh, the both. Yeah. Both. both. Exactly. Um, well then to that point, do you like, did you, I mean, do you agree with me on Chris Pratt? I, I totally agree with you on Chris Pratt. Um, Honestly, though, the person who I think did the best and he doesn't have a huge role is a uh, Jake Johnson, who's the uh, guy in he's the guy with the Jurassic Park, the t-shirt. comic relief. Yeah, he plays that character really well, uh, because that's a character that a lot of times you're going because they know it's just going to be pretty two dimensional, sort of comedic, sort of whatever. Um, they'll play it really, really high, like energy, like over the top sort of comedy, like. Uh, something like Charlie Day in. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely in Pacific Rim. In Pacific yeah. Rim, which I kind of like, but by the end, it's you want to see him get you. smashed. And actually, yeah, I would have never thought to talk about him, but you're absolutely right. And here's he's like he he's the comic relief. That's what he's mm-hmm. there to do. But unlike Charlie Day and most comic relief, you don't want to see him get eaten by the end. Yeah. You like this guy. Yeah, you you like and, him. You want him to triumph. And he's kind of he's also he's comic relief, but he's also a little bit of a voice of reason. As well in like some of the, uh, you know, corporate, uh, little back dealing things that, that end up going on, you know, by, by the middle or end of this. That's an interesting point because this movie did not have an Ian Malcolm, either the real, either mm-hmm. the actual character Ian Malcolm or an Ian Malcolm, uh, placeholder. Yeah. And so maybe that's what this guy is, is you can't literally put another brilliant scientist in there who, yeah. who's it, it sardonic. Too cookie cutter. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that's what they did here. And I, that didn't even occur to me. Maybe that's what this guy was. He, I, and, I, and Chris I he, Pratt too, a little bit. Yeah. I, I thought he did it really well. Yeah. I, maybe they're, you know, they're a combination in, in different, you know, Chris Pratt has the expertise. Uh, Jake Johnson has more of the technical sort of, uh, 
backgrounded. But And I don't think we can discuss actors in this picture without discussing one who's probably gotten the most flack. And not, not the performance itself, but the character, which is uh, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. As Claire. Yeah. Right, absolutely. Um, I think the shot across the bow early in April or May was Joss Whedon saying that that character was sexist and, of yeah. course, and that was within the context of a single scene, not the entire picture. Was she a cookie cutter female? You, you know, throughout the entire thing, all I could think is they basically took the like lawyer stooge from the original Gennaro and yes, Gennaro, <laughs> Thank of you, course, Gennaro <laughs> and turned him into a woman and gave him a little more to do, like made him a, a little more, like, uh, I don't know if you saw, I, I had a joke, I think, yesterday that I, I put up about, um, of all the callbacks to make, I can't believe Bryce Dallas Howard got eaten off of a toilet. Like, it just felt like, you know, she felt with, with, she's always wearing white and in these elaborate white suits in this jungle setting, like, she felt like she was really out of place for her, her setting and, and just didn't really, didn't really get it. But to that point, how would you have felt if she did and did get eaten? That's um, kind of the barometer of how much you like a character in this picture is do you want to see them I, get eaten? I would have been fine with it. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you like, wouldn't have been sad or ambivalent. No, you would have been just ambivalent. I, I, I would have been ambivalent. Like, I mean, I think she's if, if, if we want to put her on the Aaron Taylor Johnson to Chris Pratt scale, she's not quite Aaron Taylor Johnson, but she's closer on that end of just like um, and and, you know, it's partially the character. It's partially uh, like. I don't know. She she was fine. She did her job. She she delivered her lines fine. And and that's what but it wasn't it wasn't great. I think it probably is, you know, a lot to do with the script and with with the character that they built. Uh, and, you know, with four writers on this, I think that's something that you a lot of times get a homogenized sort of, uh, you know, you don't have a single voice that really reigns through. And I, I think that was something that I just recently, you know, preparing for this watch Jurassic Park. Something that I really like is. Um, you get, and this is something Spielberg did all the time, particularly like in the, you know, the eighties and early nineties, uh, you, you get this dialogue that feels real. Well, it feels real mm -hmm. actually. Like it, it, it feels real natural. And, you know, if they're getting exposition in, they also have almost a Robert Altman sort of thing where someone else is like, Hey, what's going on? What's, you know, so there's maybe a couple conversations intertwining and where is this, the conversations are more A to B to C directly. Yeah. It's just and, directly. This well, and again, this may be a situation of Hunter Cates just being too drunk with the light and also the quality of Chris Pratt's acting. But even though it was clear that exposition was being delivered for your consumption, mm -hmm. it didn't bother me. It didn't pull me out of it. I was still having a good time. I was still enjoying it's, myself. You know, the exposition bothered me more when, it felt like it wasn't necessary. Like I felt like a lot of times they would reveal stuff and you know, it, it wasn't revolutionary. So it was stuff that I feel like a general audience is probably 10 steps ahead of that reveal. Um, particularly a thing that, uh, I don't, I don't think I want to spoil, but there's, there's a line that Chris, Pl Chris Pratt delivers in basically the, the third act. He, he has a realization and it's the worst line in the movie. Like it's just, like, 
I had that realization maybe literally at the opening scene of the movie. Right. It's so on the nose. You're yeah. practically you're bleeding out of it. Yeah. You're having a nosebleed. Um, I will say about the here's and I and I sort of said this at the front and this is spoiler free. I don't know if you recall this conversation, but this describes how I feel about the picture in general is I described the sense synopsis to you about a year ago, a year mm-hmm. and a half ago. And I said the park has opened up and they created a new dinosaur. That new dinosaur runs amok and they use trained dinosaurs to fight it. That was the synopsis that came out a year and a half ago and i think both of our reactions to it was wow that sounds really stupid well and that's and that's why i thought you know it was getting to this level where it's like beyond anything that uh you could have imagined like being bridged with that's that's that just that description sounds like a sci-fi ridiculous but yet the the effect and i would have still enjoyed it because it's Jurassic park but the movie was not as lame as that synopsis synopsis would make it out to be you're you're absolutely it's not lame at all it's 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 great (laughs) it's lame in some places i'll say it's lame in some places but no it's and i think that's to the credit of Chris Pratt, also to the credit of, you know, if we're lamenting the screenwriters, to the credit of them in this situation where they made it something where it felt natural that um, the these raptors could be trained to an extent. We'll yeah, because on paper, that sounds ridiculous. But when you think about it, I mean, people train falcons and hawks. It's in. I think that's a pretty good comparison mm-hmm. point. Um, one more thing I'd like to say about this is in regards to Joss Whedon saying that this was sexist mm-hmm. to me, that seems pretty ridiculous when you consider that all the dinosaurs are in fact female. So, yeah. okay, no, so, but here's, so they're actually here's, the biggest characters in the movie. That's, I think that's a really weird, <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> a really weird defense. But here's another thing, like in that, in that scene that he called sexist, um, he, Chris Pratt is talking about like, oh, well, dinosaurs, you know, they, they do. I can't remember. He lists off like three things. And one of them is, uh, you know, implied sexual intercourse, which is weird because they're all female dinosaurs. Right. Is he implying that there's some perhaps I hadn't even considered because what I was actually going to say is the dinosaurs always go crazy. And that makes sense because I've never been in a situation where there are a bunch of females gathered. That they didn't go crazy. <laughs> oh my God. OK, I think let's, now's probably as good a time as any to get to spoilers. Yeah, let's, let's take this opportunity. We're going to dive into spoilers and then also maybe talk a little more about the dinosaurs. Yeah, I themselves. stepped in crap. So now we're going to dive into spoilers. <laughs> now we're in spoilers. Now you can tell us where did the movie trip and where to it pick itself back oh, up. Man, when the aviary dome broke and it just turned turned into birdemic hmm. there was a little bit leading up to that as well i think like they started getting into the really bad action trope of recent action trope of like shaky cameras and and there's even i think when when the dome breaks there's a one of those fake zoom uh push zoom things okay uh, i missed that maybe seen it maybe like, seen in and, 3d and, uh, <laughs> maybe like yeah i i did see it in 2d i saw i saw the 3d trailer in mad max and decided i did not want to see this movie in 3d okay. um but some of that is probably just a technical thing that i'm going to get hung up on a lot more than than your average viewer but then also like it just felt like that sort of derailed um where it had been going up until that point it was it it felt like a a hiccup in the story to me well and to that point i think it was also trying to make the 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 thing bigger because you at that point it's just one dinosaur versus people who versus Mm. soldiers and no one else knows about it but they needed to get the pterodactyls or the pteranodons rather to go and attack the people and so you. So these are pteranodons. There were no pterodactyls. They're pterodactyls. It's a, the pteranodons, pteranodactyls, and I can't remember okay. the name of the little one. But in any event, I think <laughs> the the point is, is what they they needed to get the park guests hurt, and mm-hmm. so they couldn't do that with 
uh, yeah, Indominus I, Rex. Yeah. Now, did you did you hate that entire scene, that entire sequence, or just that moment? It was it was probably a good ten or fifteen twenty minutes that I was just sort of like, okay, this is this is why people are hating this movie. This is where it falls off. All right. Um, okay, when did it pick itself back up then? Well, when when T Rex appears, basically. So you I mean, you didn't like it up until that there, point. There, I there were some. It was picking back up for you know a, a bit, but um, that's that's where it really like won me back over. Did is, okay. Here's the, here's a moment that I can see people being bothered by the cheese factor. Whenever <clears throat> the big reveal that the Indominus Rex had Raptor DNA, which I think we all suspected. Okay, but whenever yeah. the the Raptors start communicating with the Indominus, and then the Raptors turn on the soldiers, did that was that an eye roller for you? I mean, it wasn't as much of an eye roller as the the line of. She's got raptor DNA, mm-hmm. like or whatever. So that's, is like, that the bad line? That was the line. That line was just like the delivery was bad, the writing was bad, the it was just unnecessary. Mm-hmm. It was just ridiculous. Well, in the mere presence of DNA enables you to start communicating with uh-huh. things. For instance, that's why I can uh, lead an army of chimps yeah. just by talking well, to and them. And it also sort of felt like it undermined the whole thesis of this, from Chris Pratt's point of view at least, is she's been raised in captivity alone. She did. She doesn't have any social skills and she's never, you know, been in any of these situations. So she's like testing out what she can do. Another really bad line, really bad line that wasn't necessary at all because we're already there and already, you know, taking a look at what's going on is whenever they come across, I think it's Brontosaurus's Brontosauri. I don't know. They were Patasaurus's um, uh, killings for sport. Yeah. Yeah. And she, you didn't see that in the trailers. She's not hunting. She's killing for sport. And you missed that. In the tra- I didn't okay. remember it if All I right. did. And, but it's like, it comes so late that it was unnecessary. Like, of course she's killing for sport. Like, look at all these dead dinosaurs that she just kind of, kind of attacked. I think that was, here's the thing is, and this is happening more and more. I think that was a trailer moment almost wherever they shot the scene solely to put it in the trailer. Cause you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. They didn't need that within the context of the movie, but they need it for the trailer. If it was in the trailer and it wasn't in the movie, I would be fine with that. And that's, yeah. And I think that's what was going on. But, and that's another thing is by the time you see the movie, you already know the line. So Uh why keep it necessarily? Okay. So, uh, Chris got happy again whenever the T-Rex showed up. Um, yeah, that, that fight was amazing. Did you, okay, did you know that the T-Rex, did you know that's how it was going to go down? No, I mean, it's pretty predictable, but... Uh, it's, you know, I was still happy with it. If that makes like there were, there were a few other places where it's, you know, I, I think that's the best piece of, you know, callback with the flare and all of that, that, that works. What the way I refer, uh-huh, the way I refer to it, cause I saw this on the internet and I love it. It's, it's a Deus Rex Machina. Oh, wow. Much like the one in the, and it's not nearly as good or as absurd as the one in the original. Mm-hmm. That's probably my favorite movie moment is whenever the Raptors about to pounce the people yeah, and the T-Rex yeah. gets it. I'm not kidding yesterday on youtube i watched it three times just that <laughs> on its own i love that so much and what's absurd about that within the context of Jurassic park is how did they not know he was there it's a t-rex mm-hmm. but the one in this wasn't as absurd and nor was it as uh as exciting mm-hmm. but it was as you said a, a fantastic callback and a lot of fun to see that well and it, i mean it's i think that gave us something that you couldn't have gotten with jurassic park you know with the the just monster on monster fight these CG dinosaurs going at each other. Like it really worked very well. And, and also like had a little, just, you know, I think a little bit of that, you know, it's these two lizards fighting each other. Um, Dinosaurs are reptiles. (laughs) 
Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Sorry, Anna. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, here's a question that will probably, uh, I'm certain, would have affected your feeling at the time and mm. may even affect it. And the after effect, did you know that that, not just the same animal, but that is the same T-Rex, the exact same one as in Jurassic Park? Did you know that? I. Uh, what do you mean by that? The one that we saw in oh, Jurassic Park. Oh, he's supposed she. to, oh gosh, she is supposed to be the one yes. from, okay, See, I, I didn't know that. And here's the thing. Then that's that's probably one of my big problems. It's a problem kind of like with Avengers of something they didn't do rather than mm-hmm. something they did do is I didn't I wouldn't have known that if had I not read an interview with Colin Trevenow. Yeah. Wherever he says much, he said he described this as her. Trevorrow, whatever. Excuse me, Trevorrow. He described this. See, I correct you on dinosaurs <laughs> and you correct me on filmmakers. <laughs> but um, he described this as her unforgiven. And whenever I read that, I mean, we're talking goosebumps. Like, I need to go to yeah, the ER. The goosebumps but, but are But so he much. also said that this movie doesn't negate the uh, Lost World and Jurassic Well, let's Park get to 3. that because let's get to that here in a second because okay. I'm still in T Rex mode. Okay. So, would that have improved your. I mean, it sounds like you already dug it, but. I think I don't know why they didn't do it. I don't know why they didn't tell us this is the same T-Rex and it would have been so easy. Maybe, maybe it's the one place where they held back on exposition. Exactly. Well, and here's in here. It's now time script writer hunter time. What I would have done is tie into the fact that the T-Rex is getting old. She's 25 years old. They only live to they only live to about 30 years. So say that she's just she's being more reclusive. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they need to make the Indominus is the T-Rex mm-hmm. is becoming old and reclusive. And that would have made her final fight that much more impactful because you're like wow she's she's old mm-hmm. and it's the same dinosaur from jurassic park i don't know why they didn't let us know that 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 would have been that would have been an interesting and you know would have add more layers to the because it, you kind of have an a line and a b line storyline there with instead of just like oh we need to make more money so let's invent a new dinosaur well because in actually to that point I, that that always kind of bothered me even reading the synopsis is why mm-hmm. would anyone be bored with dinosaurs yeah I mean, they kind of did it well by having people dink around on their phones so it was kind of believable but people are always going to like dinosaurs but like it, it is a little bit of a weird conceit on its own um can we talk a little bit about just some of the nostalgia pieces some of the the callbacks and that sort of thing certainly so one of one that i really enjoyed and i don't know how how you uh felt about this was bringing back uh Dr. Wu, who is the he only has a small little role in in the original one. He's a um, what a biologist in, yeah, in the lab. Not not to be politically incorrect. And I love it how I'm now I'm saying, hey, guess. But anyway, he was insert smart looking Asian scientist yeah, here in yeah. the original. Um, and they, they bring him back here, which was a nice little like that's that's one of the few that I think really worked well. And partially because they sort of gave his character uh arc and motivate you know he's he's beyond at this point beyond just insert smart asian doctor mm-hmm. here but um they give him motivation well and it turns out that he was a villain which i mm-hmm. you know i guess it bothered me a little bit but i don't really know why i mean we didn't know all that much about him in the first one hey, so man, it turns out the he was park's gotta run no and exactly you, no, don't, you, you don't want to see how the sausage is made actually i also like that the uh the ceo of the company wasn't a snarling Mm-hmm. evil villain now he, of course, was, he was a little bit of a playboy and like sort of a like i want to fly my own helicopter exactly but he was but he wasn't just an evil corporate type so i did appreciate mm-hmm. that but that's a that's a uh, diversion your next nostalgia piece uh something that didn't work for me is the callback to the gallimimus pack mm-hmm. in from i mean it's it's basically the exact same scene from 
Jurassic Park. Right. And partially doesn't work for me because it's just like, hey, remember that thing that you like? Here it is again. The other thing is, I would say in, in Jurassic Park, that's probably the place where the dinosaurs look the worst. Here, they also look the worst. And I would say on par with how bad they looked in the original. Maybe the Gallimimus is just not photogenic. Maybe what they did is they actually put Bigfoot genes in the Gallimimus, and so they're always blurry and They always difficult. look fake, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's a good point. That's probably Actually, what it was. To, to that point, and it's not like it bothered me all that much, but I think that the T-Rex and the Raptors looked more believable in 1993 than they did in 2015. There's, uh, there are times, I, th- I think it goes back and forth. But, I mean, part of that's because they had those Phil Tippett puppets that were just really amazing. Absolutely. And also, uh, uh, the way that animation works now is it's more about movement and making the mm. muscles move underneath. And it just, it, it's to me, it's too much. Whereas back then, it was just realistic flesh tones mm-hmm. and making sure they look good in light. So it's just a different philosophy. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about the going back to the original Welcome Center and, and kind of placing them there just to... I mean, it was really because it could have been it could have been anything. It could have been anywhere. But it it felt like it was very much like, let's pause real quickly and remember, remember the original movie and have a little bit of nostalgia. For some reason, those what, 20, however many years later, those uh, nothing runs like a Jeep, man. Well, no, the Jeep wasn't even the thing that I was going to complain about. It was the uh, uh, night vision goggles. The batteries still work in those. Um, you know, I'm getting real nitpicky yeah. here, but it is just, you know, they're throwing all of these things in to say, Hey, remember, remember this, remember how it made you feel as a kid. It was pretty cool. Right. So then did you feel manipulated by that? A little bit. Okay. Like, see, it, I'm I, the way I felt it is Colin's Colin Trevorrow's a big fan. The, the writers are a big fan. Everyone's mm-hmm. a big fan. And so are you. So let's all revel in this mm, moment together. Yes. Like, I think it's something that you could have done better. That's, and that's my thing. Like they didn't do anything with it. They just said, Hey, look at this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I think my gripes with, um, the, those sorts of things trying to mine off of my nostalgia are typically that, I mean, um, or like the, the whole bird thing that's just like, they, they don't even really say much about it or a you know, but you have like a, at the very beginning, you have a, a bird claw that you think right, is a, rem, a, a some dinosaur, dinosaur yeah. claw. And uh, the, the CEO, the guy that Irfan Khan plays, he says something about, oh, got to look out for birds flying the helicopter. Wink, wink. See, judge. actually, I missed that. Um, oh, really? The, however, they missed the biggie. To me, one of the biggies, which is she can't see you if you don't move. Oh, I can't yeah. believe they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Another line that they, I wish they did. I'm just going to rewrite this movie right here. Let's do Another it. line that I wish had been in there is when the T-Rex comes out, someone says tyrant lizard king, which is what Tyrannosaurus Rex means. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, no, queen. How? <laughs> oh, man, I would have just dove in. A, I mean, just, just chills all the way down. So many goosebumps. But anyway, speaking of goosebumps, because there were so many. I think we should do this with blockbuster pictures. We did it with Avengers. What was your favorite part? Oh man. Um, I think, I, I think it's, you know, a little bit cliche, but I gotta, gotta go with the fight at the end, the fight at like the end. it. And if nothing else, because it brought me back from what I thought was the place of no return of like, you know, writing the movie off and made me believe again, including the Mosasaur coming out of nowhere and dragging Indominus to her watery grave. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was pretty good. It all worked for me. See, that's the absolute correct well, answer. And, and actually, like when when that happened, like everything starts flashing through my my head. I'm like, 
oh, that's why it was on all the posters. They're showing you they're showing you who the real badass is going to be, and you don't even know it. Well, I, I don't think that's fair. The T-Rex is still the real badass. Fine, fine. Because she's old. Like we said, she's really old, and she's still coming out and kicking ass. But absolutely the correct answer, and I would add to what you just said, is another great moment is the very end, the T-Rex roaring at the sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, again, goosebumps. So whenever I watched this, I was drunk on Dinosaur Delight, so I really yeah. don't need any further inebriation. However, I imagine you're a little bit different. So next time you see this picture, what will you be drinking? Well, I will be drinking a can of beer from Spetzel Brewery. Uh, If that name is unfamiliar to you, perhaps you know it by the name they put on the beer itself. Uh, That's Shiner, named after its home in Shiner, Texas. And if the name Shiner still doesn't ring any bells, I pity your crude, likely coastal existence. Uh, Shiner's probably best known for their flagship beer, Shiner Bach, which I've always considered to be the great working man's beer. It gets right what a lot of beers labeled domestics don't. But we'll have to save my praise for Shiner Bach for another day, because my recommendation for this movie is Shiner Ruby Redbird. Ruby Redbird originated as a summer seasonal, but from what I understand is now available year round. With that said, it's appropriately a summer beer. I've lamented foul fruit-flavored beers in the past. See any of the past three or four episodes for further details. And Ruby Redbird's trademark flavor comes from Ruby Red Texas Grapefruit. But unlike, say, a Kugel Summer Shandy... Chris, this joke is deader than the dinosaurs. I'm sorry, but it's actually appropriate this time. Unlike a Kugel Summer Shandy, the fruit in this lager is just a mild hint. And not an all-consuming, overpowering blanket of added flavor. Uh, The grapefruit gives the beer a light, crisp flavor and finishes with a nice, subtle kick of ginger, making it perfect for cookouts or riding alongside your BFF Raptor buddies in your Triumph Scrambler. Kicking back a couple of these while watching Jurassic World could only enhance your viewing experience. That's Shiner Ruby Redbird. Pick up a sixer of cans and share them with some friends. And Chris, would you like to know what my recommendation is, my beverage recommendation? I'm I'm worried, but yes. I would say a crisp, delicious Coca-Cola, much like my boy out Chris of, Pat. Out of, a, out of out an of eight-ounce glass bottle. However, my beverage recommendation is, wait for it, nothing. Because if you drink a beverage, you're going to have to go to the bathroom. You're going to have to pause this movie, or if you're watching it in theaters, leave to go to the restroom and miss something. I so got a don't bladder drink, of steel, baby. Don't drink anything. All right. Well, if you want to see Jurassic World, it's currently playing in every theater on the planet. And we'd love to hear what you thought about it if you already have seen it. So please email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd love to hear your ferocious voice. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with some listener feedback. Plus, our special features discussion, should sequels have different directors? Mr. Mailman, bring me a letter, won't you tell me the news? Because I can't stand and you can make it better on Central
On the last episode, while Hunter was lost in La La Land, guest host Jacob Graves joined me to review Mad Max Fury Road and discuss ambition addicts. Listener Amy wrote in with some feedback on the episode. Amy writes, Two things. By comparing Mad Max Fury Road to a Western, y'all missed a perfect opportunity to use a much beloved, and not at all annoying, song from an iconic Western film as a segment break. I'm of course referring to the Oscar-winning Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling." from the 1952 Western for people who don't like Westerns, High Noon. Shame. Amy went on to say, I'm going to have to agree with Jake about Tyler Durden being an ambition addict, and not just because one of my favorite, quote, pastimes, happens to be disagreeing with Chris. I think what might have you hunt up on this, Chris, is that Tyler's ambition isn't necessarily for personal gain, but rather for a global outcome. Tyler is representative of the drive within Jack's psyche to bring the world down and reset everyone. That's a very id kind of thought process, very animalistic, and definitely ambitious. The ambition and drive for this new world, in revolt to the monotony of his life, is so strong that it literally creates a schism in his consciousness. I'd compare this chaotic ambition to the Joker in The Dark Knight. He's got grand schemes and a laser focus on achieving them. It just happens to be that, rather than personal gain, he aspires towards total chaos. Other ambition addicts I thought of after listening this week, Commodus in Gladiator, Elsa in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the Neighborhood Watch Alliance in Hot Fuzz, for the greater good. Cheers, Amy. P.S. The only way I can see redeeming yourselves of that missed song opportunity is to have Jake sing the song using his Mad Max voice. Well, Amy... It delights me to say that your request has been granted. We present for your listening amusement, Jake performing Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, in the key of Mad Max. Mad Max mic check. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. Your feedback is always welcome on the show, and on the next show, we are going to do a 10th anniversary retrospective on Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. With that in mind, we want to know, who is your favorite Batman? From Lewis Wilson to Ben Affleck. Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com or leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. 
Conventional wisdom dictates that a film series should be the exclusive domain of a single director. But is the conventional wisdom correct? Should a sole filmmaker spearhead a series, or do film series benefit from having an infusion of a fresh perspective? Chris, only the Sith dabble in absolutes, but I will throw down this resolution. Should sequels have different directors? <sighs> okay, well, I don't think I can go to the dark side on this and have an, have an absolute. I, I'm going to say I think it it really matters what this, uh, the series is. All right. And so I'll begin with a series that has had a different director for basically every film. And I haven't seen everything in the series, but I'm going to focus on the first two. Uh, and I think there's a, a nice outcome out of this. I'm talking about alien, uh, 1979 Ridley Scott directed it, um, or directed the first one. And, you know, it was a very kind of, slow burn kind of quiet but really eerie you know science fiction movie um you know more a suspense science fiction mm -hmm. movie than anything and then in 1986 james cameron made aliens which was like a full-blown sci-fi action movie you know like uh, completely ramping up to a different level but both of those worked very well. Absolutely. And what and what's interesting about that example is that there are alien people and there are aliens people. It's kind of mm -hmm. like uh, the Beatles versus the Stones. You like both, but you have to like one more. And I actually belong to the aliens camp. But however you feel, whichever one you like more, I don't think it's arguable that Ridley Scott would not have made aliens. That was a James Cameron movie. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Through. Absolutely. And so that's, you know, the to the benefit of having. Uh, a different director with a different perspective um, was really nice. Like, I mean, there's, there's great, great moments in both. Um, and, and then the series kind of Fincher did alien three, which I've never seen. I haven't seen uh, alien resurrection. It was done by the guy that did Amelie. They're not that good, but I will say this. They're not that good, but they're not any worse than Prometheus. And that's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then we get back to Prometheus where Ridley Scott, the original director of this kind of slow burn suspense sci-fi movie makes, What's kind of more in the canon of Cameron's film, I would say, um, or maybe a little mix of his it's, and Cameron's. It's the first two. It's kind of like a selective. Um, yeah. But with Damon Lindelof behind, you know, the, the pinning it and it just didn't work at all. Well, and to that point, and you can make the case that Ridley Scott's a different director now than he was 30 years ago. Abs but at absolutely. the same time, yes. But at the same time, if Aliens or Alien 2, whatever it was going to be called, was anything like Prometheus, then this story clearly turned out the way it should have. And I'm much happier that James Cameron took over. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. So what else do you got? Well, on the other side of that, uh, I've got the X-Men franchise as an example, and that's very splintered and very crazy. But let's focus at the beginning again of just X-Men X2 mm -hmm. and X-Men Last Stand. Uh, X-Men and X2, I think, were really good, solid uh, comic book movies, particularly at a time when comic book movies weren't like the thing. Uh, and Brian Singer was at the helm. Of In fact, them. it kind of made them the thing. Yeah, a, a little bit. And Brian Singer from correct me if I'm wrong, because this is more your realm than mine. But Brian Singer left to do Superman, Superman Returns. Returns. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then Brett Ratner jumped in, which is just like if if hearing those words just sent chills down your spine, like it certainly it, sent chills down everyone's collective spines yeah, whenever it was I mean, announced. That that guy just he just ruined it. So you think that the series would have turned out better had Brian Singer stuck along? I, I think so. And I haven't seen uh, another weird situation where this is just sort of serendipitous. But you know, Brian Singer came back for Days of Future Past, which I haven't seen yet. Um, have you? Have yeah, you I haven't. It? And it's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, because I feel like after that, the, the X-Men franchise kind of got a little wishy-washy um, with, you know, yeah, the, the Wolverine movies. And, and I've never seen the Wolverines, but I thought first class was very good. Mm-hmm. First, first class was good. It was not, I would say still not on par with, mm-hmm. uh, those first two. Another film series worth mentioning. We already talked about this guy's Terminator. Because, of mm-hmm. course, the first two Terminators were done by James Cameron. And actually, I would say that Terminator 2 is a seminal action picture. It's yes. that good. Can we can we talk about Terminator real quick? Absolutely. What, yeah, let, what are your feelings on... Uh, let, let's just talk about the, the two James Cameron ones mm-hmm. first. Uh, between Terminator and Terminator 2, where do you fall? Terminator 2. Okay. Do you like Terminator? I do, yes. Okay. I think it's, it's one of those things that's kind of like, you know, throwback. It's kind of like the difference between Mad Max and Road Warrior. I can mm-hmm. still appreciate Terminator, even though I like Terminator 2 so See, much more. For me, and I don't think I've sat from start to finish through the Terminator since I was like a teenager, but I didn't really care much for it. Like, it felt a little a little campy, a little, a little cheesy. Like, like, the jump from that to uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day was just huge. Well, and it's a guy who needs a bigger sandbox getting to play in a bigger sandbox. Yeah, and I think that's, that's what true. happened there. Um, have you seen Rise of the Machines? Um, well, I, th- I've seen Rise of the Machines. I haven't seen Salvation. And obviously Genesis isn't out. Right. Yet, and, so. Mick, and Mick G did Rise Rise and or not right. He did. He, he did Salvation. And Mick G did Salvation. And yeah. he's kind of a Brett Ratner type. And then yeah. who does Genesis? Alan, Some guy. <laughs> yeah. Alan Taylor. He did. The only thing that I know of that he did was. Uh, Thor the Dark World, which I didn't see because I don't like Thor. Okay, and actually I think that he's a, a Game of Thrones guy, but what's interesting about yeah. Genesis is that James Cameron actually said it's a true third yeah. movie in the yeah, series. Yeah, he said, which, which is getting back to that thing we were talking about with Jurassic World earlier of kind of, James Cameron was basically saying, like, throw out three, salvation doesn't matter, this is the the next one, but they're also kind of playing around mm-hmm. with like, and you can kind of do that with a time travel movie where you can say, oh, well, things change because time travel and the anomaly. Right. Exactly. Um, it's, it it's looks the ultimate go to. Um, so where would you with with Terminator? Okay, so we're in we're in accordance on Alien. Like mm-hmm. it works for multiple people. Um, and then with X-Men, I think are we in agreement that Brian a, Singer kind of was the. The voice. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things having not seen X-Men 3 directed by Brian Saner because the problems are really mm. more with the script and trying to shove too much into too little. Yeah. So I'm not sure he could have improved that. But he's but also Brian Saner is just a better director than Brett Ratner. So, yes. yes. I, I'm going to give it to the other side. Give it to single director on this one. Uh, where do you where do you fall in Terminator? Do I need to ask? It, it, yeah. James Cameron was clearly better. And in many ways, I think the series should have ended it, too. There's no reason to do a three, four and five. But they want to keep making money. Cha-ching, but it's, it, well, no, and exactly. They've got to make money for whenever the world ends. Uh-huh. All right. I'm going to actually change this and take this conversation in a different direction. Let's talk about film series that did have one director who might have benefited from having a fresh perspective. Yeah. The Godfather. The Godfather Part Three is. I think people, when it came out, you know, they wanted to like it so much mm-hmm. that they said it wasn't bad, but it really is a bad picture. Do you think that that movie should have had a different director and would the series, the trilogy be better if that had happened? I, what is The Godfather Part 3? Exactly. The Godfather Part 3, and maybe, I mean, it's it's so forgettable, but it's the one wherever they're involved with the Vatican and then Sofia Coppola's in it. Yeah, no, I've never heard of this. You've never even heard of it or... No, I, I, Hunter, I own this movie, but I do not acknowledge it's, it's, okay. Oh, I see what you did there. I have the Godfather box I see what you did there. Okay. Um, then what's another trilogy that might've been, but, oh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, and I, Mm. and this is going to get us some hate mail. I thought fellowship was magnificent. I thought return of the king was pretty good. I thought two towers is a little bit of a 
the you know the shortest kid in the room. Do you think do, that would have been better with a new director? Uh, I I don't think so. Not in not in that it would have been way too complicated for that scenario. And I mean, it, it Two Towers is one of those. It's it's not your uh return or i'm sorry it's not your empire strikes back middle movie it's your like we have we have to make this thing we have these things we have this bridge in the middle sort of movie okay uh, and and it feels like that you know it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of battles and a lot of stuff i mean return of the king is also pretty long but i think the argument could also be made that it earns it yeah and it has the benefit of being conclusive it's more actually let's let's keep on this just a little bit longer what about the the Hobbit movies though? Guillermo del Toro was originally right, and I haven't to... seen those, and I think I haven't seen them. But from what I understand, <laughs> do, do you also not acknowledge that the Hobbit movies exist? No, I mean, I I I just have no desire to sit through six don't, hours of that. Don't. And I like the Lord of the Rings, but I just I don't want to yeah. do it. I can't do that to myself. I, I gave the first one a shot, and I didn't love it. Like it 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 wasn't great. And then I tried to watch the second one. I recorded on HBO, got through maybe 25 minutes and decided, like, if I have to sit through another, you know, four hours or however, you know, however much I have left, I don't want to. So I just I just gave up. Okay, this might be a slightly different example because we're talking about a huge leap in time. Mm -hmm. But Indiana Jones, I think everyone really likes the trilogy. A lot of people don't like Temple of Doom, which I don't understand. But I don't think it's a very, very different movie, though. Like, there's no Nazis. Exactly. It needs the Nazis. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that anyone disagrees that Crystal Skull was just not a good picture. Utterly, utterly awful. I mean, particularly as an Indiana Jones movie, I think you make that just a generic action adventure movie a mummy movie it's uh, yeah no that's not a bad that's not let's let's get back to the let's put a pin in the mummy yeah but you make that just a generic a- action adventure movie and it's not a good movie but it's not like the travesty that it is as an indiana jones movie. would it have been better if someone other than Ste- and steven spielberg directed it it would have been better if someone other than uh george lucas, george lucas <laughs> had written it i think okay uh we're going now mummy okay the mummy the the mummy this is a this is a black hole that i apologize in advance for pulling you into but um in my like research trying to you know uh find uh fodder for this i got into a black hole with the mummy i'll be frank like i don't particularly care for the mummy movies i think they come in that unfortunate time when they were making movies with that were heavily dependent on cgi in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and the technology just wasn't there um, some of some of the blade movies come to mind as well. It came out when people were just starting to get sick of it. Well, it's, still it just, it, it just wasn't to the place where, I mean, the rock as the scorpion King in the memory returns is, is a video game character is and, really, really awful. And that's what actually, I'm glad you said that. Cause we always have to give the mummy credit because it did launch his acting career. So that, if nothing else, I, I suppose that's true. But so you've got uh, these, these are the movies of the mummy. Are you ready for this? Um, we've got the mummy directed by Steven Summers. Uh, we've got The Mummy Returns, directed by Stephen Summers. We've got then The Scorpion King comes out. I'm going in chronological order. Um, I'm going to just leave out the yeah. the directors now because they don't matter. Then you've got The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. I don't even know what this movie is. Jet Li. Jet Li. It had Jet Li yeah. as The Mummy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. I can remember stocking that when I worked at Best Buy. Okay. Then you've got The Scorpion King, Rise of the Warrior. I guess that's Scorpion King 2. Then you've got The Scorpion King 3, Battle for Redemption. And then just this year, the Scorpion King 4 Quest for Power came out. And this led me to a really dark wormhole on Wikipedia of 
direct to DVD sequels. Of too many sequels, yeah. And it, it, one of the things that I found amazing is that in these last few Scorpion King movies, so this is a franchise that spawned off another series, and then that whole series just died in the you know five dollar bin at Walmart. Uh, but the people who were directing these movies, it looked like almost exclusively just directed sequels of movies that maybe had, I mean, we're, we're talking about, uh, the Marine two, death race Two, blue crush Two, um, uh, the man with the iron fists Two. I mean, these people like their entire career, it seems is just their canon is directing these. Well, and to that point, you mentioned the land. We've talked, made the joke about land before time earlier. How many sequels of there uh, are there for that? I'm really glad you asked. Let let me ask this first off the top of your head. If you had to guess how many land before time movies there were, how many would you say there were when I was still paying attention? And I know that's humiliating enough that I was paying attention. I think it was seven. Double that. 14. There are 14. The last one came out this year. Okay. There, yeah. there are 14 Land Before Time movies. Okay. So let's take a look at these titles real quick. I'm going to pick two of my favorites. All right. Uh, you pick two of your favorites. My, I'll go first with my, my first one. Um, the Land Before Time 6, The Secret of Saurus Rock. I don't know what that means. Uh, I can't, I, you know, I, I have nothing to add there, but my favorites and mine to come in tandem is the land before time 10, the great lawn neck migration, which was then followed by the land before time 11 invasion of the tiny sauruses. Those tiny sauruses, you got to look out for them. Are they aliens? I don't understand. Okay. But my, my all time favorite of these is the land before time 13, the wisdom of friends. And has it, nothing to do with dinosaurs at all. No, and I, I, you know, it's, it's truly astounding. Another thing that I noticed is that all of the titles have Roman numerals in it. So I think mm-hmm. this is uh, assuming that five-year-olds can read Roman numerals. Well, it's, or, it's strictly to teach them Roman numerals. I think that's why they keep well, making them. It's educational. Dinosaurs yeah. talked and you learn about Roman numerals. Yeah. Di- yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess to kind of close the loop on this and talk one more time about dinosaurs, you kind of gave your impression of it depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to be a Sith and speak in absolutes. Okay. I think that a film series does benefit from having new directors involved in it. However, I like the what Jurassic Park or excuse me, what Jurassic World did where Steven Spielberg had final cut. Hmm. Now, I would actually say the weakest entry in the entire series is The Lost World, which was what he directed. Mm -hmm. Three gets a bad rap. It's actually pretty all right. And he had final cut on that. And then he also had final cut on this. So I think having a boss, having a producer, a godfather, whatever in charge, Mm -hmm. but having different directors throughout. Throughout or or at a point? At a point, yeah, okay. at a point. Maybe after two, because it seems to like continue to continue on and if keep it, it fresh. To, yeah, okay. I can, you know, I can mostly, you know, I'll, I'll put some caveats there, uh, but I, I could mostly agree with that. Well, whether you can mostly agree, only kind of sort of agree, or completely disagree, we want to know your opinion. So please email it to us at hello at warstartsatmidnight dot com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. I was late for work on Monday, Tuesday she never called. Wednesday I'm here, I work my fingers to the bone. Thursday worries all around me, Friday I can barely breathe. I need a cure for the hurt that's ailing me. You feel no pain when your feet start moving. Just let loose and you feel alright. Just keep it going all night.
Hunter, it's time again for some really rad recommendations. I hope yours has dinosaurs. You know, Chris, I was really, really considering reaching into my treasure trove of theropod run amok pictures that I've seen. <laughs> However, I won't be doing that today because I recently saw a picture that I haven't seen in quite a long time, but I just have to recommend because I, I like it so much. It is from 1965 and it is Redbeard. Redbeard mm. was directed by Akira Kurosawa and it was actually his final collaboration with Toshiro Mifune. They had done, I believe, 12 pictures together and this is the last one. And it's it's most noteworthy for that, but it's actually a fantastic picture uh, that I would recommend anyway. It is set in the 1800s at a poor clinic and is about a couple of doctors. The titular Redbeard, played by Toshiro Mifune, takes a younger doctor under his wings and trains him. And what's interesting about this picture is it's so Kurosawan in that he focuses his so on every minute detail. I, I found this out is that this hospital, not only did it have to have the right architecture of the period, it had to have the right wood from the area. And he went so far as to put actual medicine in the cabinets, even though they would never be shown on film. So that just goes to show his level of authenticity. But this is a, a lovely picture. It's melodrama, and melodrama gets a bad rap. But there's high melodrama like Mad Men and low melodrama like Days of Our Lives, and this would qualify as high melodrama. And it's quite long. It's three hours, but it, it goes by like a breeze. And I would I would certainly recommend it if you're a Kurosawa fan. It's probably not on the it's not on Seven Samurai Ikiru or mm -hmm. Rashomon level, but it's definitely right underneath that. And it's available on Blu-ray as well as Hulu Plus, uh, both on Criterion Collection. So that's 1965's Redbeard. Man, Hunter, you're you're always shaming me with the uh, the films I have not seen. Uh, Kurosawa, I've seen I've seen a bit of Kurosawa, but uh, not enough. And this is another one. That I usually don't do this with foreign directors, but I totally dove headfirst into Akira Kurosawa because there's a lot of European directors. I may have seen one of their films or none of their films, but mm -hmm. with him, it's just it. it I've yeah, responded Jake, to it. And and you know, Jake took me to task last week about uh, not having seen Throne of Blood either. So I need I need to get on it. I'll I'll add them to the. Uh, the war crimes list. Uh, so my recommendation this week is a little different than I typically recommend because it's not a movie. It's actually a podcast about movies, but not just a podcast about movies, but a podcast about visual effects in movies and not just a podcast about visual effects in movies, but a podcast about old school visual effects in movies. Um, it's called the optical. It's been, I think it's been running for maybe a year, year and a half now. And they go back through the old back catalogs of, Cinefix magazine, which is a an effects magazine that started, I believe, in the late seventies, early eighties, and they kind of use that as um, source material for stories on, you know, talking about uh, these old movies from from that time. So, uh, like most recently, they did uh, Return of the Jedi, and they had I can't think of the guy's name, the guy that does the filmumentaries. Have you ever seen these where he takes um, like the all the behind the scenes footage he can find from movies and makes a kind of a documentary sort of thing that goes along with the playing of a film. Oh no, I've and never so seen that. It's, they're, they're really, really interesting. I think you can see them on, find them on YouTube. I'll, I'll link to them in the show notes. Um, had him on to talk about that because he, he had, I think done one for each of the uh, original Star Wars movies. But I mean, everything from talking about Ray Harryhausen, like Clash of the Titans, um, Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, Empire Strikes Back, like I said before, Return of the Jedi, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Uh, one that I really liked that I wasn't really expecting was Poltergeist was a really interesting um, uh, listen 
Uh, also, Altered States, which is a movie I hadn't seen, but just being sort of a technical nerd uh, that I am, like I really liked. Uh, and, and that's that's I think the thing that I really like about this podcast is they're talking about old school visual effects technology that isn't around anymore, but you know, in a lot of ways, directly led to where we are today. They're also talking about visual effects that sometimes, you know, I'll see it in a movie and know that like, there's no way that that's, you know, that's real, but not know how they did it. And so just to hear about, you know, to hear about uh, sort of the visual effects in E.T., which was one of my favorite movies as a kid was, was kind of great. So uh, that's the optical podcast. Um, You can subscribe in iTunes. Uh, I believe they have a SoundCloud uh, or your favorite podcatcher. I'll I'll put a link up in the uh, show notes for for that as well. And just because I am a man of the people and have to appeal to my millions and millions of fans, I'll go ahead and give you all what you want. Planet of the Dinosaurs. I'm not sure where exactly to find this picture. I think you can get a you can spend like thirty seven dollars and get a VHS copy of this. But it's from the early 1970s. I think it was done in the aftermath of Planet of the Apes, and it's about a people who crash land on a planet with dinosaurs it's a it's naturally awful however the uh, stop motion and the stop motion animation in my in my mind is top notch bear in mind i haven't seen this in about 18 years so perhaps i need to go back and watch this picture again but that's planted the dinosaurs i don't know where to find it probably you can probably like i said get a 50 dollar tape it on amazon all right well that's a wrap for another episode of war starts at midnight Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com, where you can subscribe to our brand new newsletter, The Midweek Memo. It's filled with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and exclusive articles written just for you, the listener. Go sign up for it, right now. I really think you're going to like it. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you enjoy the show, help us reach new listeners by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. And if you hate the show or if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, or you just want to hear us sing a Western song from the 1950s, please email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com or give us a call on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Music on this week's show comes from Ben Rector. Find tour dates and more at binrectormusic.com. Tune in next time for our 10th anniversary retrospective on Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. Now, Chris, you're going to come prepared this time, right? Yeah. Yeah, man, I swear. Swear to me! Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, folks. semi-messy a la carte approach affect your stay at the park or were you too damn drunk with dazzling dinosaur delirium (laughs) so close that's like tripping on like the four yard line oh my god uh just keep crawling yeah (laughs) i don't i don't think we'll get to that but okay just let it go yeah let it go sorry that was Get out! That's, that's that's let it go, in. let it go. Yeah. <laughs> now I'll give you some more to work with.